Welcome to A Closer Look, a podcast that explores the ways in which the world we live in and how we engage with it can impact our health, happiness, and well-being. Now, here's your host, Dr. Robin Pickering, Professor of Health Sciences at Whitworth University. Thank you so much for joining us on A Closer Look. I am Robin Pickering, your host, and I am so excited today. We are going to talk about how to recruit, promote, and retain women in the workforce and actually talk about how we dive in and find a workplace that suits our needs and allows us to thrive. And I'm so excited to have Anna Franklin and Darby McLean with us today. And I will start with an official introduction, but then I will also talk a little about how I know you, Anna. Um, Anna is the Chief DEI Officer for Eastern Washington, Montana, Providence, she has worked in healthcare for over 28 years, which is incredible, and is the previous director of clinical effectiveness at Providence, a commissioner on the Washington State Women's Commission. She is a board member of the YWCA, including the co-chair of Racial and Social Justice, and super interesting and new to me. Um, she is a Lean Six Master Black Belt, and I can't wait to hear about that, and um, a good friend and a board member with me, and we have plenty of 7.30 a.m. meetings <laughs> together with wet hair. Love it. Thank you for being here, Anna. And we also have Darby McLean, who is the new president at Spiceology. Um, she is a former vice president of operations. She is an adjunct instructor at GU. She was the COO at Gen Prime, has a bachelor's in microbiology, is um, the, okay, now I'm going to say it wrong, EWU STEM board chair. I didn't say that right, did I? Oh, you got close. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's Close enough. How could I be better at that? I'm the I'm the chair of the dean's board for the C STEM colleges. There we go. Okay, there we go. That sounded way better. Um, and I talked to Chip Overstreet, who is a board member for Spiceology, and he had to say about you: Darby is a consummate professional and a great human being. She approaches her job with energy and vigor. And there's nothing that she can't accomplish when she sets her mind to it. Spiceology is fortunate to have her leadership. How kind. <laughs> Love that. So I maybe we'll start with you, Darby. Can you kind of walk us through your, your path, your journey to Spiceology, um, your position as president? That's super exciting. Yeah, you bet. Um, you know, it is a it's a. It's a spicy story. <laughs> Love it. Um, Love no, it. I, um, my, I studied chemistry and biology as a mm -hmm. college student and was sure I was tracking to do cancer research somewhere in some big city, but um, loved the Spokane area and was fortunate enough to get involved with a startup company that was spinning out of Eastern Washington University based on some research there and um, ended up spending a 20-year career um, in the startup ecosystem Um in medical device and biotech mm -hmm. fields and stayed really involved again with um, programs like Gonzaga and mm -hmm. Eastern um, in terms of staying connected to students and to startup activity in the area. And so when Spiceology um, began its journey here in Spokane, I followed them closely and with interest and stayed in touch with Chip. And when they were um, really building a team to try to focus on growth, I thought it was time to switch over and see if I could lend a hand. Okay. If any of our listeners are one of the like four people on earth who have not heard of Spiceology, tell us um, what Spiceology is, what you're all about. Oh my gosh. Well, uh, you know, simply Spiceology is a spice company, but we're not your mama's spice company. Um, we do sell things like cinnamon and cumin and baking powder, but 
we, um, by the absolute um, grade A highest quality ingredients, everything is ground fresh and shipped fresh in the United States. So instead of having something that's been harvested internationally, packaged internationally, and then sat in a container for three years, which is basically what you're used to buying at the grocery store, everything's really fresh and, and fantastically differentiated. We also innovate. So again, um, really unique flavor combinations like black and blue with just got real blue cheese for um, for a steak seasoning or something like raspberry chipotle, which is as good on ribs as it is if you dump it into your brownie mix. And unrelated, but the look is so cool. I was actually talking to somebody about you coming on here He's like, oh, I, they're so great. They're so wonderful. But I also love how they look in my kitchen because it looks like a periodic table. Yes. And, I, and I'm thinking that kind of goes well with your microbiology background. So it, it's kept me close to my scientific roots. <laughs> yeah. um, we are the periodic table of flavor. So chilies are red and blends are orange and wow. modernist ingredients are black. And so you can um, very quickly and visually identify the products by their two-letter right. code and also by their color. So the brand has um, <clears throat> been very well received by both chefs and consumers alike. Love it. So great. I'm hungry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Anna, you do something very different. Yes, I do. <laughs> Tell us about your journey and what's going on with Providence. Thank you, Robin. Uh, my journey actually started, I was at Eastern Washington University obtaining my urban and regional planning degree, I had a vision of becoming a city planner and raising uh, the economic uh, status and structure from a housing, business, Ooh. transportation, and um, some of our lower income areas. Yeah. And then in my last quarter, <laughs> that's my, when they get you. They get, they, that's my when they environmental get professor kicked off his shoes, kicked up his feet and said, you know, successful city planners are fired at a minimum of two times a year. I mean, two times in their career. Ooh. That's not an option for me. <laughs> as a single mother of two children, I'm not doing Ooh. that. <laughs> and so at the time, as I was obtaining my degree, I was working and doing um, at uh, Pathology Associates Medical mm. Laboratories. And as I obtained my degree, I was offered a director role for quality assurance. Mm. Uh, and during that time, um, that tenure through the laboratory industry, I fell in love with healthcare. And all of my uh, education, lived experiences, I was able to easily transfer it to healthcare and uh, tra uh, transition my vision to serving the community from a different aspect than what I had originally thought. And during that time, I also obtained my Lean Six Sigma uh, green belt, and then I uh, transitioned into Lean Six Sigma master black belt uh, with a lot of uh, significant outcomes in healthcare, both from uh, patient outcomes, financial outcomes, operational outcomes. Okay, I'm going to stop you. All right. The people out there that maybe don't know about Spiceology or the Lean Six program, because I'm envisioning Lean Six Sigma. A, a, I'm envisioning a black belt fighting yes. contact. So people like me who now are picturing you like mm -hmm. in a gi. Tell us a little bit about what that means. So Lean actually is a, Lean Six Sigma as in its entirety is a process improvement methodology. And so when you look at Lean, that's process improvement, think about a Toyota production, a Toyota manufacturing mm. system. And I actually had a sensei from uh, Toyota uh, who was my mentor through, uh, as I started down this journey. And so we are able to look at um, uh, different processes and look and see where are the gaps occurring, where are the handoffs missing. Many times in healthcare, our gaps are communication. Mm -hmm. And so how can we identify those gaps, line uh, uh, processes up in a way that is easy for the end user to follow through so that it becomes instinctual? And then we put in different uh, mechanisms that prevent us from uh, going astray in, in a specific process. You can pretty much apply Lean Six Sigma across any industry, any process. In fact, I can go in, I do this actually a lot. When I go into a restaurant, I look at the flow naturally. It just becomes mm. instinctual. The construction outside, I'm looking at the flow of traffic. I'm looking at the flow of all of the drivers and all of the construction workers and the where the equipment's placed. And I'm in my mind putting all of those pieces together, thinking, how could we do this easier? Ooh, systems improvement stuff. Mm -hmm. Love it. Yes. Okay. So both of you 
really great examples of women who have started with a academic path that looks a little bit different from what you're doing now, but have very successfully kind of risen through the ranks of leadership. So now we all want to know your secret sauce. Like, what are you doing that allows you to so successfully navigate that? And when we spoke about this in preparation for this conversation, both of you talked a lot about authenticity. I would love to hear about the role of authenticity in your leadership journey. Absolutely. I think for me, it starts a little bit when I look back at um, my role models coming up through my, my professional experiences. And I had some really, really fantastic, and continue to have really fantastic role models. And a lot of those people, though, in, in my career were men. Mm-hmm. And so what I there's nothing wrong with that. And they, they're, they were fantastic people. But what I started to realize is that while there was a lot of things I could take away um, professionally and scientifically, and even from a leadership perspective, um, from those experiences, I couldn't emulate them exactly. It wasn't authentic. I had to make adaptations to discover my own authentic, genuine leadership style. And as I as I did that, I became more and more successful. So in other words, I thought role models were crucially important, and yet I ended up having to make adaptations to those styles to make them fit into what worked for me. And I've found that the people who do that in general are more successful. This, I wish that I would have heard that lesson early in my career, because I remember one of the first things that I got to do in a leadership capacity was teach a college course. And it was as a TA, but it was kind of like, here's the course. Here's all of my notes for the course. Here's what I assign in this course. And quite literally, here's your script for talking about this thing. So I thought, oh, all I need to do to be successful as a respected college professor is just become this person. And so I went into the class. I taught all the lessons, I did the script, and every day I felt like I was trying to figure out how to become this re, uh, this professor that I respected. And I did respect that person uh, very much, but it felt so inauthentic. And it was as if everyone in the class immediately picked up on it. Mm-hmm. They couldn't stand me like you know when you look Mm -hmm. out and you're like Mm -hmm. these people I am not connecting with them they don't like me they complained I got terrible teaching evals and I thought well how is that possible they love that person I'm acting like that person and then I realized oh I have to figure out my own voice my Mm -hmm. own voice of leadership what feels authentic for me and I think that's a real misconception for especially young people entering the workforce is that you have to just pretend to be that person or that type of person. Exactly. If you can emulate it, then, you know, it should have the same quality and that just doesn't translate. Oh, and I would love to know, and I'm putting you totally on the spot right now and we can edit this out if she decides she doesn't want to keep this. (laughs) How did you do that? How did you decide, okay, I'm going to stop trying to pretend to be X, Y, and Z and figure out what my own style is? You know, I don't think it's a moment. I don't think it comes to a single decision point. I think it it, uh, it started happening organically. And I think that the, the more confidence I gained mm-hmm. in my command of the topic, of the, uh, the subject matter, um, wh- whatever it was that we were working on, then I was able to uh, absorb and then communicate more authentically. So I think that just the, that that it was an organic process. It was, it, it evolved over time. I I can't reduce it to a single moment. Mm. Um, No secret formula, huh? I I wish that I could give everyone (laughs) a magic easy button, but. um, Because we were going to attach that in the link where they could call in. Yeah, just your magic easy button on (laughs) amazon.com and. 
Okay, so over time, it just sort of became an authentic part um, as you gain more confidence. Yeah, I mean, I think that our journey is experienced. I mean, it's experiential and experimental. Mm-hmm. I, you're, you're trying mm-hmm. things and you're um, you're reflecting on what's working, mm-hmm. what's not working, and then you're you know making adaptations based on the the feedback that you're getting, yeah. the results. And so I think it's a you know it's a loop, and um and we got to continue to do that, right? There's no end point the getting it wrong part reflecting and learning on that mm-hmm. making them you know the first time I taught and I got those awful teaching evaluations it just was like stab my like I put so much time and effort into memorizing the scripts and I think that's a really important lesson to say hey I messed up that didn't feel right that didn't work and how do I do better next time Anna, you had an amazing story about your really personal experience with the whole kind of idea around emulating others Mm -hmm. to be successful versus finding that kind of authentic place. Mm -hmm. Um, My career, when I first started, I, I, um, I call it, I grew up um, Mm. in my uh, early, my twenties and my thirties in a predominantly white organization. Um, And so with that, I also had male role models, but I had um, uh, several uh, white uh, white female role models right. and amazing, amazing allies, amazing sponsors. But I too also found myself thinking, do I need to emulate them? Well, physically, I am not able to emulate them. And, and I have a lot of uh, diversity and joy. And also in the industry, um, there's a lot of um, introverts and mm-hmm. I am not an infer- introvert. And so I would try to squash that and I was losing my joy. And I, too, when I would train classes, I would receive horrible feedback because I was trying to just follow the script instead of being who I am and being bringing my authentic self and really celebrating that. And that actually started my path in my journey down uh, through uh, for really focusing more on diversity, equity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. As I started to also see colleagues of mine also uh, squashing that joy and and suppressing that and not bringing their whole self to work. Because Mm -hmm. when it comes down to it, each one of us has we are complex, diverse individuals. We may have all of these visible characteristics, but internally, all those invisible characteristics that's who we are as a person. And so I started my journey really focusing in on who I was as an individual and thinking about what are all of the qualities that I like and dislike about myself and come to terms in accepting that and having peace within that. Um, there were uh, several examples where I remember this one time, um, my hair, I can, I can wear my hair straight, I can wear it curly, I love wearing my braids. Mm. Love my braids. I love I love wearing uh, my uh, I'll wear extensions and so forth. So I just like having a variety because that's the diversity in me with my hair and a blessing that I'm able to, to right. have all of these different styles. And so I remember one time in my career, I was told that I could no longer wear braids mm. to work. It was not professional enough. Mm. And I took that to heart because at that time I was still trying to figure out who I was as a leader. Um, and, um, it really hit my self-esteem. And so I went home and I thought, wow, I need to change who I am as an individual in order to, uh, keep employment because I also Mm. have a family to raise. Mm -hmm. I have a career path that I'm trying to achieve. And I did that. I suppressed myself. So I would run my braids during my summer vacations, during Mm. spring break, but I would not wear them to work. Finally, fast forward uh, about a decade, I met a couple of uh, friends at work and they had seen me on accident with my braids and they were like, why don't you ever wear those to work? And I was like, and so I told them to share the story and they were like appalled. And then I was like, you know, but I have been going on this journey and this is a conversation that I've had with my close inner circle and and so forth. And so uh, I decided to wear braids to work one day. And um, my boss, who was a CEO at the time, uh, looked at me from across the room, pointed to her head, and and silently said, I love these. Mm. And that was that validation that I didn't know I needed. Mm. And from then on, I wear my braids to work. But also, colleagues and other women, other black women, have asked me, can we wear our braids to work? And I'm like, absolutely. We need to be who we are. We need to celebrate that diversity that each one of us brings. Okay, I love that story. And I want to hear more about, because I think 
This is something that is coming up. We see it in the news in terms of braids and professionalism and expectations around looks and having a professional look at work and maybe changing what that looks like. Maybe we'll start with you. How is professionalism changing? How do you navigate that when there are maybe multi-generational working environments that maybe have different ideas about professionalism? How do you navigate navigate that piece? Yeah, I I, I think it's a crucially important thing to understand. Um, as, as someone with a scientific background, looked really looked into this because it, it is so interesting how um, it's persisted. 50 years ago, they, they did a study with children where they asked them, what does a scientist look like? And they asked them to draw a scientist. And only 6%, so it was less than 10% of the drawings showed a female as a scientist. In 2018, they repeated the experiment. So this is modern times, right? This is, you know, near now. It was only 24%. Wow. So can we call that progress? <laughs> I suppose. Um, but you can see that we're still really lacking. And, and people make these absolutely biased associations in terms of what someone looks like. Um, and, and it's not just in science. You know, what does an executive look like? What does an investor look like? What does a professor look like? And um, so all that to say, I think it's something we absolutely need need to address. We're in an industry at Spiceology where it's really centered around food and meals and chefs. And so fortunately, we've benefited from a lot of the um, mm. kind of intense media attention around chef culture. And you see um, people that you don't see the big white tall hats that you'd potentially be expecting to see from a traditional chef. It's really changed. You see, you know, it's um, bearded dudes and lots of tattoos and um, a very great mix of men and women in the kitchen. And so that has translated to the, the, our ability to attract a diverse set of, of folks in the workplace. And we've really tried to uh, encourage and allow that um, by having very few restrictions about um, what someone can wear to work or what they can look like to be you know, participating in our culture. So, but I, I actually think we're unique that way. Mm -hmm. um, right. Mm -hmm. We're the exception, not the rule. So it's, it's an interesting problem and one that I think needs a lot of attention. It was an, I remember starting out as a professor in my 20s. So I was so close in age to the students. And I had, again, this idea of, okay, what does a professor look like? And I was picturing like a tweed jacket and the, the patches on the elbows and maybe, you know, smoking a pipe between classes and with a hat and all of this. And I had at the time a lot of athletes in class. So they were all really tall guys. And I'm thinking, okay, how do I get respect with this crew? So I would wear these really tall heels so that I would look and I would wear a bun and kind of cultivated this I'm a professional look. Um, but again, it felt really inauthentic. And um, in academia, we're pretty loose on clothing and, and communicating professionalism and, and all of that. But a lot of it was internalized. Like, okay, what do I think a professor is mm -hmm. supposed to look like? Mm -hmm. And again, part of my process was figuring out what does authentic me look like? How do I become a leader in an authentic way, how does that translate to clothes? How does that translate to the way that I talk, the examples that I use? Um, and it's interesting hearing you talk about in your particular industry, there is a broad range of what is considered professional. Mm -hmm. How do you, as the president of a country, country, yeah, <laughs> you just like, got promoted. She just received <laughs> yeah. a huge promotion. See, there's a lot of leadership <laughs> skills that we're learning here. No, as a president of a company, how do you communicate if, if you're wanting to attract a diverse staff, if you're wanting to retain and promote, how do you communicate your expectations around professionalism? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, one is just is the way that I conduct myself, but it's also making sure that um, our staff gets exposure to the other leaders in the organization and mm. their their own unique 
mm-hmm. and diverse um, interpretation. Mm. So we we just you know try to celebrate that we've got we've got a lot of um, people with unique backgrounds in the organization, and I think it's making sure that they all get some airtime, so nice. that everyone in the organization gets exposure to to um, our unique style or the way that we're interpreting what right. professionalism. Oh, that's great. Looks like. What do you, you think, Anna? In I, your in your world, I know that uh, a big piece of your DEI goals, your diversity, equity, inclusion goals, include just that: retaining mm-hmm. retaining folks, um, mm-hmm. promoting folks, recruiting folks. Um, we have a predominantly white community here in Spokane, and sometimes that can be a challenge. But how do you? When you talked about braids and and creating a culture like that, how do you do that? What do, what's your work look like at Providence? Well, one of our journeys has been a journey of self awareness, and that has been really looking at what are our unconscious biases. So when mm. you talked earlier about your image of what a professor should mm. look like, that is based on a lifetime of your own lived experiences, media, education, and so forth. And so identifying that we hold, a one, recognizing that we all have bias, we have to have bias to survive, but it's our negative biases that we have to really understand, call out, and really identify ways in which we can overcome those biases. Okay, I'm going to stop you. Mm -hmm. Folks listening might hear bias, Mm -hmm. and they'll think, I'm not a racist, I'm not prejudiced. I don't have biases. Can you talk a little bit about what's different about a bias versus racism or prejudice or any of those things? Well, um, so what I so what we start with when we talk about self awareness, we start with implicit unconscious bias. Um, and so, as human beings, we are ever evolving, and our brains are processing forty million bits of information at any given moment in time. In order for us to be able to um, uh, to really formulate what our thoughts are, what our feelings are, we have to make snap decisions. Mm-hmm. That's our bias. Mm-hmm. And we make those based off of what we know. That doesn't mean that we are a racist. It doesn't mean that we are discriminating against another individual. It means that as a human being, I am very complex. I have a lifetime of my own lived experiences, my own education, my own thoughts and and so forth and uh, what I've seen on the media. And we're taking all of that information in at such a rapid pace that we need our body needs a way in order to decipher that into something that's simplistic. And so um, when we think about that from that perspective, bias is natural and, and we have evolved like we needed to have our bias to recognize danger. We need to have our bias to recognize love. We need to have our bias to recognize joy, sadness, mm-hmm. things of that nature. And so as we think about how this plays out in the workplace, those biases, we have those unconscious biases that play in our mind, but we're unconsciously also projecting them onto others. Tell me what that looks like. So that looks like when we are in a situation and we may recognize we may have had an experience that was a negative experience with a a certain population, a certain um, diverse characteristic, and we might hold that unconsciously in our minds. Mm. So our words, what we're saying is, I am not biased. I'm not, I I am not uh, projecting this negative stereotype, this negative perspective, but unconsciously we are actually doing that because of that experience. We are projecting that in an unconscious manner and it's our it's our job in healthcare to really understand what are those biases that we bring because if we project that it's patient care. Mm-hmm. And so this is where we have to take a step back and really understand what are those uncon- implicit unconscious biases that we hold internally as an individual so that we can lead with love and we can see the humanity in every single individual that walks through our doors. So if we are trying to talk to people about these DEI initiatives, mm-hmm. trying to um, diversify the workforce, trying to help people understand some of these kind of deep-rooted ways in which they've learned to navigate the world that, that may 
be creating a barrier between what you're talking about, providing good patient care or connecting with colleagues or, or whatever it is. How can we make the workplace more inclusive for real, not just mm-hmm. checking off these DEI boxes. Okay, yeah. we had one workshop. We yes. talked. We did the implicit <laughs> bias quick test on yeah. the computer. Um, we talked about it. Check. We can move on until next year. How do we do the real work, the real stuff? You mentioned inclusivity when mm-hmm. we were speaking before. What does that look like for real when so, it's not just checking boxes? So in re- so what we do, um, we have um, our entire implicit unconscious bias training and awareness. And that is ongoing. And this is where we have to practice a culture of humility and recognize that we are lifelong learners because we're, we are complex, ever-evolving human beings. But in the real world, so once we have that train, that initial training and awareness, this is when we then move to practical application with various scenarios. And we have um, we create courageous spaces so that we can have these conversations that are not everyone agrees. So there may be times of agreement, but there's also times where we don't agree. But we have to listen with compassion and empathy into even though we don't uh, necessarily agree with uh, the stance that the other person is presenting. And so we have these scenarios and we have these tactics. One of those tactics is the power of the five-second five pause. So as we are observing a situation at a rapid pace, we're observing based on all of our, our lifetime of experiences, and then our perception is based on that lifetime of observations. It's during that time that we have to have a quick five-second pause to think, is my internal unconscious bias coming out to play and making a snap judgment against this person or the scenario? Is it going to impact this individual or this situation in a negative way? But first you have to understand what those biases are. You have to have that, and that's that self-awareness journey. So when I talked earlier about really identifying who I am as an individual, part of my journey has been a journey of self-care and really understanding what do I like about myself? What do I dislike about myself? Because I know that whatever I dislike about myself, I'm going to have a judgment against another person because I also have that same characteristic in myself. Ooh, somehow. Okay. okay. Let me unpack what you're saying here. So I'm hearing five second pause. Yes. Okay. So part the power of, what, of the pause. Okay. Boy, I have a hard time with the pause. I'm more I'm, of an interrupter. <laughs> yeah. But, so I don't even have a pause at all. It's just a takeover. And this is, and that is, so what I would, so what I would do, yes. and maybe we'll practice this Robin later on. Okay. And so what we would do is we would have a, a simple scenario and we would practice the pause. Okay. Tell me a scenario. So is this, are you talking about in a DEI training or mm-hmm. this is just dealing with a patient or it's where a, does the five second pause the come in? Five second pause comes in anywhere. I'll tell you a scenario personally. Okay. Around three o'clock every single day, I get hangry. <laughs> I am so That's impossible. Hangry. It doesn't match your personality at oh, all. It does. <laughs> yeah. And I That's why we scheduled this. this really early. <laughs> yes. Because I would be hangry <laughs> and you would see this other side of me. And so during at around three o'clock, I'm hangry. I've had a day full of meetings, conversations, switching gears a lot of times. Um, and so I noticed that w- um, that was when my unconscious biases would come out. But it's also around the time of day when I need to make a lot of decisions. OK, are you brave enough to share an example of an unconscious bias when you say that it comes out at three Mm-hmm. I may have a bias towards a, a situation that I have not ever been introduced. And so I'm going to go with what I know, because as a human being, we gravitate to our likeness. So if there's a decision or an individual that doesn't necessarily look like me, that I don't resonate with, that, I, that I'm unfamiliar with, my bias may come out during that time. In fact, during times of severe um, anxiety, severe like if we're extremely happy so severe emotions one way or another our biases uh, tend to come out in full force during that three o'clock time i'm hangry so i've got a severe reaction physical reaction mental reaction so i have uh, to combat that i take a five second pause and say okay anna are you feeling that inner um that inner emotion are you feeling are you feeling hangry 
uh, for one, and I always prepare myself. I've got my little uh, snack of nuts, and I've got my water, and I get up and I take a quick walk because I can feel that internally coming mm. out. And I know that my likelihood of my biases coming out during that time is extremely high, and I don't want that. Mm. And it'll come out in an unconscious manner without me even realizing it. So this might even play out with when are you scheduling important meetings? Correct. When are you making mm-hmm. important decisions? Correct. If you're in a meeting and you're feeling particularly irritable, planning ahead for that. Correct. But also like if such and such says something and it gets on my last nerve and I know that I'm about to pause, pause. And we have, and you have to practice it. Okay. Practicing practice the it. five second pause. Yes. And then in that pause, you're doing some self-reflection. Um, yes, I, ha- I asked myself a couple of questions that I that I had mentioned, but I also have my truth tellers. So I think it's important to surround yourself with truth tellers. Oh, the ones that keep it real. Yes, yeah. they keep it real. <laughs> uh, I, an example of a truth teller. Oh, we all know our keep it real people. Yes. Yeah. An example of a truth teller. I remember about uh, 10 years ago, I took the Harvard Implicit Association test. Yes, yes. It's an amazing test. I took it and didn't agree with the results. I was very angry. Yes. I wasn't hangry. I was angry. <laughs> You're like, I, thought, I am the DEI no, expert. I, there is no way that I have this bias. Right. Right. So I remember asking my friend who lives in Tacoma and I said, oh my gosh, can you believe it? The, I took this test and I looked at the methodology behind the scenes because, you know, I'm Six Sigma. So I need to validate the method right, that right. they're using. And it said I had this bias. And she turned around and she looked at me. She goes, uh-huh, yeah, you do. And I go, what? I do not have this bias. And she was like, yes, you do. And she was able to repeat uh, situations where that bias had come out. And then I was angry at myself. So at first I was angry at the test. Then I was angry at myself. And then I had to ha- realize, oh, you, there's some humility. There's an opportunity. So that's when I took very specific actions to really start to expose myself to different experiences Mm. associated with that particular bias that was presenting in myself. One of the things I think is so important that you're saying, this idea of surrounding, not all of our friends need to be truth tellers. (laughs) We need cheerleaders. We need truth tellers. We need the ones that just have your back no matter what. We need to have a variety of influences including truth tellers. But on that same note, one of the things you mentioned earlier was this idea of sponsors, and Mm -hmm. we'll talk about what that is, but also mentors. And again, Mm -hmm. so many of us have male mentors Mm -hmm. um, because of just the structures and systems that precede us, Mm -hmm. um, or mentors, and, and my big gripe is always oh, well, there's another woman that works here. She can be your mentor. Mm. And then they can just do a bunch of unpaid work to get you up to speed. Um, But this idea of women using mentorship, using sponsorship to um, move their way up the leadership, leadership rungs, can you talk a little bit about the role of mentors, sponsors, what does that look like for you? Maybe what does that look like within your organization? What do we need to know about those things? Yeah, I, well, I, I just think they're crucial. I think that everyone um, on the, on their journey um, benefits from mentors, whether it's, um, you know, clearly or unconsciously, mm-hmm. you're, you're um, responding to what's being modeled to you. Yep. Both positively and negatively. So um, I, lo- I loved um, when you were talking before about uh, awareness, just generating an awareness so that you can self-advocate. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're aware that mentors um, or that, yeah, I, mentors and role models are impacting your experience, then having that awareness helps you be more intentional about seeking them out, um, deciding what things you'd like to learn, what trajectory you'd like to explore and and trying to shift it from something that's just happening to you to something that you're in control of. Yes. I think organizations are the same way. So we've been kind of shifting back and forth between what does a business do, what do I do individually, and it's actually really remarkable how similar it is. So again, talking about um, becoming aware of your biases, 
businesses are the same way. Mm-hmm. How can how can I be sure that I'm doing a great job as a company um, with my DEI initiatives if I have no baseline? Mm-hmm. So we mm-hmm. need to measure. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what, you know one of the things we're doing at Spiceology is trying to survey our our population. You know, uh, get there's there are demographic type of survey surveys where you're right. saying you know this is how many men or women that we have working here. Um, and then there's surveys like, can you bring your whole self to work? Right. Do you feel safe in your work environment? Do, do you, you feel, feel comfortable mm-hmm. speaking up? Yeah. Do you feel comfortable sharing your experiences? Do you feel comfortable, you know, wearing what you want to wear or putting your hair in braids? Or, And we need to open those communication channels so that we can have a baseline oh, and say, yeah. how are we doing? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, how would you know? And so, right. uh, yeah, cre- creating opportunities for self-reflection, both as individuals right. and right. organizations. It's really interesting that you bring that up. Um, I work in a consulting capacity with organizations to improve systems, to improve DEI initiatives, et cetera. And one of the really hard things is when we design the survey, because it's like, ooh, what if they say... X, Y, and Z, and we don't want to hear X, Y, and Z. Are we in a place where we can hear that? Where does that information go? What do we do with it? Once we hear it, do we have to do something with it? And I think you make such a good point about you have to be brave enough to listen. Yeah. And um, I think that's the key. Yeah, we have to hold ourselves as individuals accountable, but also the organization accountable. And that has to be built into our systems and structures. That doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen overnight. And so having out the ability to measure. But if you're not if you don't have accountability uh, structures in place, that measurement, you're going to lose the trust right. of all of your uh, in our in our world. We call our uh, we're, we're caregivers. Every single one of us are caregivers, whether we're clinical mm. or not. Right. In an organization, employees. And so what does that look like from an accountability perspective? Mm-hmm. Okay. I know that we can't reduce attracting, promoting, retaining women down to a brief podcast. But if you but I'm gonna try. <laughs> if you were to give general advice or even specific advice to, okay, we're an organization that is struggling to keep women in the workforce. We are an organization that people are leaving and not explaining why, or we look kind of on the org chart and everybody kind of looks the same at the top and maybe looks Mm -hmm. the same at the bottom. What's some of the biggest advice that you can give? I think for, as an individual, some of my best, one of my, uh, there's two things. One is to really, uh, A, uh, have that self-care. Because as a woman, we give, 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 give. But how do we take that time and have that self-care and really know what is what makes me happy? What do I like about myself? What is my vision for who I am as an individual? But then also really understanding who are my informal and formal mentors? Who's, who, who are my allies? Who are those individuals that I can trust, whether in a professional or a personal capacity, that are going to speak up for me, but also guide me? So let me pull, tug on my coat if I'm going in the wrong direction, doing it in a nice and loving way, of course. But mm-hmm. let me know if, um, you know if I'm going down this wrong path. But also be my cheerleader. And that goes back to what you were saying. We need a variety of, of a support system. And so having that support system is absolutely crucial. But I think also negotiating, negotiating in a thoughtful way, but also in a fearless way. And I learned the, the power of negotiation through a lot of uh, trial and error where I was being grossly underpaid for the, um, the work I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I was giving my all to the organization, uh, working nights and weekends, bringing my kids into work so I can meet these deadlines. Mm-hmm. And, and I look back and I think, oh, man, if I would have known the art of negotiation, I would have been I would have felt empowered. So knowing your true worth knowing your skill set. What's that secret? I love the word spicy. What's that secret <laughs> sauce? My spicy, my spice. I have a friend at Gonzaga who also talks about spice and um, our conversations are so 
fascinating but okay so you're talking about being a woman being going a woman. into a yes. workspace where you are not you're not really kind of surrounded by folks that look like you that Correct. that um and, and kind of assessing where am i where are my sponsors um what does my authentic self look like reflecting on that um figuring out how to negotiate whether that be for position for pay and also resources. So a lot of times women are thrust into positions and we oftentimes might feel grateful that we have that position, but we don't necessarily have the resources to be strategic, mm -hmm. uh, to be successful. And then that causes us to go, like we always talk about breaking the glass ceiling. Um, there is a, uh, uh, a leader at MD Anderson who always talks about don't go over the glass cliff. Mm. So once you break that ceiling, make sure you don't go through over the glass cliff and so, you have to have the resources you have to know what is it that you need as an individual as a team to thrive in a position in an organization oh and i love that find out what is needed to progress mm -hmm. what who are my people that i can connect with yes. that i can learn kind of the the written and the unwritten rules yes. of that um what do what do i want what's what's my authentic self what does professionalism look like here? And do I fit into that space? Darby, from a president side, mm -hmm. from a administration side, what, what advice can you give to an organization who is looking to expand and diversify and be inclusive from a management perspective? How do we get there? Yeah, a couple things. I mean, I would say... Be open and adaptive. Mm. Um, we, we have to, as organizations, uh, avoid the we have arrived syndrome, where we might be doing a really, mm. really good job right now. I think Spiceology is doing a great job, but that doesn't mean we've arrived and now this is something we no longer need to pay attention to, give right. attention to, spend time on. I, I, I think it's a, it's, it's a, it's a journey. The mm. journey is the reward, right? We're, we're, we, uh, and we have to continue continually evaluate um, how we're doing and communicate with our with our staff so I think I think that's the advice just you know you've never arrived you, you, you there's always more you can be doing um, and you should always be trying to. and I love those questions that you proposed do you feel comfortable yeah. do you feel like you can speak up at meetings um, one of the questions that we have on our survey um, do people interrupt you when you try to talk at meetings? Do people restate what you said and then agree with that person's version of it? You know, yeah. um, do you feel like you can wear the clothes that you're comfortable in? Do you feel like you can um, flex schedule if you've got an emergency? And I think they're hard questions to ask because sometimes the answers aren't what we want to hear, but it sounds like you're saying we got to keep doing this if we want to not say that we've arrived. Gotta, yeah, you got to keep the dialogue mm -hmm. open. Yeah. Um, you have to keep communicating. And as an organization, you have to continue to consider how you're baselining. And the, the way we work is a great example. I think that we've had um, kind of traditional thoughts about what does effective work look like? And, um, you know, we can all think back. The, the pandemic, in fact, has been has had the unintended positive consequence of demonstrating um, really effectively to organizations that work can look like a lot of different things. You mm -hmm. don't need a person in a chair from, you know, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. to have effective work. And I think that that is that that is had been really challenged before. Yeah. Remote work, it wasn't new because of the pandemic, but it was something that people um, allowed to happen and then discovered there was discovery, right? That, that, be, that is actually this very effective way to allow people to work. So if, if an organization can continue its path of discovery and be adaptive and open to Ooh, the idea that's that hard to do, it, it, it yeah. is hard to do. And yet but it, it's how we grow. Right. And it's brought you all to where mm -hmm. you are right now. Absolutely. And that's fantastic. And you have to embed it into, again, going back to systems and structures. Yep. You, it's so important to be intentional mm. and to continue to embed it into the systems and structures. And that's where the ongoing measurement and accountability comes yes. into play. Uh, you, 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 you struck a, a thought as well. One of the other things that I think is absolutely critical is lifting others up mm -hmm. and, and, making sure that we are lifting others up 
um, because there uh, is a tendency sometimes for um, as women, as we continue to grow in our careers, that we have um, made made it or we yeah. have succeeded and um, we have went through all of this trauma and, and, and trials and errors. Um, but how do we look back Ooh, and yes. hold and hold our hand out mm. and bring others with us? Because sometimes make- I don't know if you've seen this. Sometimes women can be nasty to other women. Oh, yes. Yes. And sometimes um, we feel like there's a scarcity of yeah. positions. And so it's each person for themselves and being humble enough to say, even if this was really tough for me, you know what? I'm going to make it easier for the next person. Exactly. And that's a, that can be a gut check. And that is a legacy making. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. If I can do that for others and make it so much easier because it shouldn't be this hard. Oh, it shouldn't be right. Okay. I heard a lot of good nuggets. I heard authentic figure out how to be authentic in our leadership style, authentic, authentic in our presentation of self. Um, I heard about that pesky five minute po- or five second. <laughs> five minutes would be Robin. really We're hard for me. Being authentic too is don't lose your joy. Oh, absolutely. You have to have your joy. Boy, and the what world wants happy. to take it, doesn't it? Yeah. So we got to keep it. Keep the joy, five second pause, be authentic, create inquiry, listen, listen to folks. And lastly, before we go, and I always like to end the show this way, I am in a continuous mission to dispel misinformation, disinformation, floating things out in the uh, internet abyss that just are a thorn in your side that you want to clear up, misconception that you want to clear up. What do you think? Gosh, that that women aren't good at math. Oh, <clears throat> clear it up. <laughs> I love it. I'm I struggle with that one. I struggle. The math was the one um, consistent thorn in my side throughout all of my schooling. Math is hard, but it doesn't mean women can't do it. Love so it's it. The resilience to get through, solve the problems. Oh. You're absolutely as capable as a, a man. There's no difference there. Amen. Amen. How about you? Close us out, Anna. That diversity cannot occur in Spokane. Ooh. Diversity can occur anywhere. Oh, say it loud for the people in the back. Diversity can occur anywhere. <laughs> and in, or, in order for it to be successful, we have to have a culture of inclusion. Absolutely. We have to be welcoming to everyone. Mm-hmm. And we have to love everyone. Oh, I love ending on that. Thank you. Thank you both for being here. This has been so inspiring for me. Um, I hope it has been inspired for everyone listening. Thank you for joining us. Um, I appreciate you all. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. We appreciate you. (laughs) Thanks for listening to A Closer Look. Visit us on social media and wherever you go to find your podcasts. Be sure to join us next time as Dr. Robin Pickering and her guests take A Closer Look.